This episode of Lord John Lander includes sensitive topics that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Lord John Lander, the Outlander podcast for Lord John fans, where we talk about all things Outlander, but especially about Jamie and his Sassanac. And sometimes we talk about Claire, too. For however long it takes, we'll lead you on a journey so chaotic, you'll question every life choice that led you to be here today. And like the Hotel California, you can check out anytime, but you can never leave. We may not be the Outlander podcast you wanted, but we will be the Outlander podcast you didn't know you needed. Now, before we get into it, this is your one and only warning that show and book spoilers are lurking around every corner. We're going to spoil stuff from future seasons, future books, and our own brains. Remember, if you can't prove our headcanon didn't happen, then we can only assume that it did. If you make it through the episode in one piece, we'd love to hear from you. Send us your burning questions, wild theories, thick prompts, flattering compliments, or whatever's on your mind. You can contact us on Twitter and Tumblr at Lord John Lander or on our website at lordjohnlander.wordpress.com where you'll also find our archived episodes, teasers, thick wrecks, and more. Hello, welcome to Lord John Lander. We are your hosts. I'm Mistress Pandora. You can call me Pan. And I'm Beth. This week, we are talking about episode 207, Faith, or as I like to call it, the one with all the bad things. Yeah, lots of bad things. Lots and lots of bad things. Fun fact, this is actually the only episode before today that I have seen twice. Mm. Other than like the, you know, the rewatch for the podcast. This is the only one I watched twice on my own. Um. Not because I just wanted to, but because I had a friend who was watching it after I had already gone through the series and it was my fault that she got into it. And uh, I watched it with her for moral support. And we, we weren't together, but I think it was, yeah, I think it was during the pandemic, like early, like 2020. Mm, uh, we we're texting yeah. each other. We would do that sometimes. We would text each other, watch it together, be like, okay, one, two, three, pl- hit play. And we're like... 20 minutes in, she's like, this is awful. When does it get better? I said, season three. <laughs> Hang in there. <laughs> About halfway through. Yeah. Just, uh, hold on to it. We'll get there. So did you want to hop right into your history lesson? Because I think we may have hit a uh, special interest of yours because it looks like you, you wrote a little I mean, book report. Anything can be a special interest of mine, given the right conditions. So, and then I happened to find a really good um, research paper uh, about it. So it just, not, and not like a kid's, you know, like high school, like, like, no, like NIH, like, like, like a legit, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> So because I, you know, I was watching the episode and um, I just realized that, you know, not a lot of people watching would even really quite understand like what's going on with Claire, especially um, when she's um, having has the fever and then Raymond comes and saves her. Um, because it's, 
also like tied up with all the magic shit and stuff. So anyways, my, in what sparked my, my quest was the question, did people in the 18th century know that a retained placenta could cause puerperal fever? And that word is a mouthful. I'm probably going to stumble over it every time. You did better than I could have. I'm going to let you just go. <laughs> okay, perfect. So, and then that led, led me to this. So basically, um, pure pearl fever is sort of, was sort of a blanket term for any sort of fever condition after childbirth. And it almost always ended in death. So it would start like, within three days of giving birth, usually on the third day, once it developed, the chances of survival were extremely low. And this ish, this like really perplexed doctors, especially in the late 18th century and early 19th century, because physicians at the time were actually trying to gain prestige and trust by positioning themselves as man midwives, right? So, you know, midwives who were men. So they were doing that. And then, you know, patients were freaking dying and that didn't look good for their reputation. So they took a pretty keen interest in trying to understand what caused this illness and if there were any ways to treat it. So the actual term Puerperal fever was first used in 1716 by a guy named Edward Struther, but there has been evidence of this phenomena, this this illness, you know, going as back as far back as you know we can we have any history. And it's now known that it's actually caused by group B strep, which is something that now women get tested for when they're like around 36, 38 weeks pregnant, they actually get swabbed in a couple places um, and they test for that so that if they have group B strep, they will, as soon as the woman goes into the hospital, they will start running antibiotics um, for them. But of course they didn't know what group B strep or what any type of infections really were. So hence they started trying to figure it out. Another interesting phenomenon that they started noticing around the same time, more like the late 18th century, uh, mid to late 18th century, was that it could be like epidemic. Like there would be pockets of women in in a similar place dying of puerperal fever. It would be like a 70 to 80% fatality rate. And actually, I found this really interesting is that the first um, account of puerperal fever as an epidemic, what happened in Paris in 1745, 1746. So, yeah, which is kind of interesting, timely, right? Um, And um, that's all like documented and stuff like that. And then there were a whole bunch of epidemics reported throughout England and also Scotland through the end of the 18th century. They needed to understand not only what was causing it, but also why 
did it sometimes seem to be contagious and sometimes not? Basically, their main focus of study was whether or not the fever was caused by inflammation or putridity, which even even though there were like two different schools of thought on, on it, you can, as I read the article, you could, which will, I will link. So if anyone else is sparked by this little lesson, um, they could go read it too. But basically, you know, it wasn't really either or because like if they thought it was inflammation, they thought that like the inflammation led to something becoming putrid. And if they thought it was caused by something putrid, then that led to inflammation. So they really weren't two different schools of thought really, but, um, but it, and also it kind of didn't matter because the only cure they could come up with was of course, bloodletting. Oh, our favorite. If they thought it was inflammatory, they would do the bloodletting to try to somehow reduce the inflammation um, and or if the inflammation led to the putridity, I guess is the word, then they would bloodlet to try to get rid of, you know, what was decaying or whatever in their bodies. And so it just, it you know, all roads led to bloodletting. Um, this is the 18th and 19th century. So, <laughs> I mean... Never mind that the patient is already bleeding. <laughs> yeah, you know, like a lot. <laughs> Let's just do a little more, you know. Just a little more, just a little bit hole up top more. Heart. <laughs> so he, I pulled out just a few interesting like moments in time as they studied this because as I read it, I was just fascinated by like how they would get so close <laughs> to the answer, <laughs> but like couldn't connect the dots, obviously, because they didn't have a good understanding of, of what we now know as infection and bacteria and that bacteria causes infection. So it was, it was interesting because you, as I'm reading it, I'm like, it's right there. Just go one step further. <laughs> but of course, Hindsight, right? Um, there was a physician named Alexander Gordon, um, and he was a man midwife in Aberdeen in the 1790s. And he was one of the first ones to emphasize that puerperal fever could be transmitted from one woman to another by the birth attendant. And of course, this was pretty controversial, a pretty controversial idea. <laughs> that like hand washing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, uh, nope. I, no, no, <laughs> yeah, it's still had, never mind. <laughs> no, I know. I was having the same thoughts, and I'm like, am I gonna go there? Am I gonna go there? Um, yeah, so, um, <laughs> anywho, I'll stop um, heckling, I promise. <laughs> And then there were a lot of guys, you know, of these physicians studying this, writing treatises on this and all that. But it wasn't until 1839 that um, a physician named Robert Ferguson argued that any sort of damage or injury to the placenta during childbirth could have, quote unquote, dangerous consequences that would set up a reaction that led to pure girl fever. So he was so close, like it so close. So close, like, and I, I do want to say that like retained placenta isn't the only way to get pure growth fever, but 
it was a pretty surefire way to get it. So he was so close. Um, and then Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, who was an American in 1843, and Ignaz Semmelweis, um, who was a Hungarian in 1860, both wrote works um, that were seminal to the understanding of the infectious nature of puerperal fever. So, you know, that's something like, uh, I want to say 70 years after Alexander Gordon first kind of was making that connection, they were finally, there were other people kind of writing about it more. And then in 1850, James Young Simpson noted the similarities between puerperal—I can't say it anymore—puerperal fever and surgical fever. So it's like, okay, you're almost there. Um, so but the, close. <laughs> but the paper that was I was going off of, it really only studied it up until like the like mid to end of the 19th century. So I didn't really get into how it was discovered. But so basically, the point of me kind of going back and doing this was trying to like, understand if they had any knowledge of the fact that if Claire had retained some of her placenta, um, that could be the cause of the fever. And then the answer was no. However, Raymond obviously had that knowledge because he just goes in and, you know, reaches in there and just freaking yanks it out. So just grabs, it. Just grabs, <laughs> just grabs it. it. So, and we do know that Raymond himself is a time traveler. So whether he's been to the future, you know, he's, or he probably has been to the future and knew these things. And so that combined with his healing powers were what was able to save Claire because like I said it was considered like a fatal illness so by all rights Claire should have died. That's a fascinating research hole you fell into Beth. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> I was gonna I was also going to get into um, looking into because my theory is that the reason that Claire delivered early and that Faith died was because of a placental abruption, which for those not in the know, that's when the placenta like tears apart from the lining of the uterus and it can cause heavy bleeding and it can also cause, so depending on how bad it is, it can cause the woman to go into labor and it can cause the child to be have a lack of oxygen and all of that stuff. So, and it can be brought on by a lot of things. Stress is one of them that can, one of the factors that can contribute to it. And probably, you know, you know, walking around a hospital and not taking it easy. Yeah. Not taking, you know, and not that, not that women shouldn't do any sort of working or labor when they're pregnant, but if you're good, if you're prone to, to it happening, it's that those things are going to exacerbate it. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't get too much into that. That's just kind of my working knowledge of what it is. And that's always been my theory of why, you know, why Claire went into labor early, why she had the bleeding prior, you know, when she, when mother Hildegard made her stay the night before, um, and all of that makes sense. It tracks. Yes, it does. 
so anyway, yeah. So, so that's um, the explanation you didn't ask for, <laughs> <laughs> but on to the rest. So on to the rest. I think before we get too far, I just want to take a moment. I'll, there should have already been a um, trigger warning at the start of this anyway, but I just want to be real specific. So because we are talking about episode 207, Faith, uh, the one with all the bad things, this conversation that we're going to have is not going to be our usual bubbly, happy, laughing selves. We will be discussing sexual violence again. We'll make sure that there are resources, support resources linked in the social media as well. Rain.org, R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G is a really good one for that. And also we are going to be talking about the death of a child. So this is going to be a very heavy episode. So mind your mental health and we'll make sure that there are support resources available should you choose to use them. Absolutely. You have way more thoughts about, well, I have lots of thoughts. None of them are nice. I don't really like this episode. I'm just going to be honest. Yeah, it's a it's a tough episode. And I, I don't want to say that I like it. I mean, I just, I do think it's a well done episode. Not in the fact that I like it when all the bad things happen in one episode. Mm-hmm. But given the material that they had. I do think most, most of the episode was well done with a few caveats. Um, and I think that part of that is just Katrina Bell's portrayal of a grieving mother. Oh, she's brilliant. She's so good. She just captures. I've never had to experience this thing goodness but you know she really just captures what i would imagine would be just the panic and the anger and the the mania of what she's going through you know having woken up and not having her baby there and i mean she just does such an amazing job with that so yeah she she really does So I just think that's a really big part of it. And I do think that Outlander handled this well. They don't handle a lot of other tough issues very well. But I do think that they handled this well. And they gave the character the space to grieve. And yeah. Yeah, I I do agree. They handle loss and death pretty well on the show. It's other things. We'll get there. We've gotten there before. We'll get there again. Um, I do want to point out that, again, this episode starts with a flash forward, which is kind of weird. It's like dated and everything. So, you know, it's not like she's just dreaming it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's kind of like, too, like they weren't really prepared. Like they had like a little girl with red hair, but like, it's not like it's the same little girl that like plays her in season three and like it's just it just kind of looks thrown together to me it's like it was almost like it was an afterthought um and I don't really think it was necessary but and I'm not going to spoil what you're going to talk about in a little bit but something that you wrote in your notes made me think twice about the beginning but I'm going to hold I'm going to save that until you get to that part (laughs) I did have one kind of like, also, I was just like, you know, that scene where she's 
they're working on her. And I was just like, imagine being like in and out of consciousness and you look up and the dude who told you that creepy story about holding a beating heart in his hand is the guy that's like trying to save you in your baby's life. (laughs) Like, oh shit. I mean, yes, because as far as, well, that, that was the last time we saw her. That was the last time they saw each other. Yeah. And oh, fancy meeting you here, man. But at the same time, though, to be fair, <laughs> to be fair, other than he's a wackadoo, he is as competent a, <laughs> I hesitate to say physician because we know what his day job is, but he's as competent of medical professional as she's going to find between him and Mother Hildegard. She can't possibly be in better hands. Well, I mean, let's be real here. It is the 1740s. He is probably more competent yes. than a lot of the positions. At least he didn't do any bloodletting, okay? Right. Like, he knows ex- she did plenty of that on her own without the help, and I'm so sorry for the dark, the dark joke there. But he, yeah, I, well, the executioner in this case, is very well-versed in the things that make bodies stop sustaining life. Yes. And he just, you know, the logical conclusion is do the opposite of that. Right. You know, just reverse it. So, um, yeah. No, you're right. She is in probably the best hands she could be, um, considering she cannot deliver her own baby. I'm kind of just looking at my notes because I I had made note of when Claire said um, when the priest came to give her the last rites and she, he asked if she wanted to confess her sins. And she said, my sins are all I have left. I thought that was a really interesting line. And I had a moment where I thought that maybe it was connected to something she had said in book one to the, um, priest at the Abbey, but it wasn't. So, um, oh. moving on. <laughs> I still it's thought a, it was kind of an interesting thing to say. It's a good line. It's a good, like, gut punch line. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I do also have to say that, um, you know, like, we have been sort of building up this whole season where Claire is. Claire has been doing a lot of shit that isn't cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, I don't think like the first couple times that I watched it through, I don't think I really was looking with the critical eye that I was looking at it this time. And so I really kind of, you know, tried to step out of my kind of love for Outlander and, you know, look at what the character is actually doing. Um, And, you know, it was some, it was pretty shitty. um, Some of the stuff that she did. And that gave me a greater appreciation for her slow realization over the episode that she made a lot of mistakes that, led to her being in the position that she's in. And I'm not saying she did bad things. So her baby died. That's like not at all what I'm implying, but she did do things that put her in the position she's in, in terms of 
being alone, you know, ha- not having Jamie with her, just it, a lot of stuff. And it, so it was really interesting to see her progress in that realization over the course of the episode, because right, you know, when she's finds out that Jack Randall's alive, she says, she thinks to herself, well, Jack Randall is alive and that means Frank is still is too. And then she finally asks, but at what cost? Mm -hmm. And, you know, she did a lot of things in the name of keeping Frank alive. A lot of things that were not good. You know, I think she's finally kind of feeling the cost of all of those things that she did. Yeah, I agree. She, and to emphasize your point, she didn't deserve this, but she made really selfish choices and it led to a really horrible situation. Yeah. And it actually gives me a greater appreciation for the character to now look at this with a more critical eye because if I'm just sort of watching this and just, you know, being like Claire can do no wrong, then you don't get the same depth of character from her that you, that you get when you are seeing her realize that she fucked some shit up. Yeah. Finally, a little bit of character growth. Growth. And that's, it's, it's interesting to think about that because you want your characters to grow. And mm-hmm. I think that tracking Claire's growth depends, your ability to track Claire's growth depends on, like I said, like how critically you look at her earlier decisions. Yeah, if you are already coming into this thinking she's completely justified and 100% right and like she can do no wrong, she has nowhere to go. Yeah. Yeah. See, it's okay to be critical of the things that you like. You can see the nuance when you do that. Absolutely. I find it interesting that Claire refers to randall as the cat with nine lives because that parallels very strongly to ways that jamie is described throughout the series particularly in the books but like eyes slanted like a cat comes up a lot Mm -hmm. um the whole thing with the fortune teller in paris when he was in college with pierre and she said that he would die nine times before it stuck yep there's an interesting parallel I think she even referred to him as a cat, didn't she? Something like that. Something like Probably. that. Probably. Yeah. And like, or like the way he moves through the forest is like a big cat kind of, it's just a lot of cat oh. imagery in Absolutely. relation to Jamie. And so, yeah, it's a, I don't know what it means, but there's a parallel. Yeah. I'm too tired to unpack that, but there it is. <laughs> Do with it. <laughs> I don't feel well. Do with it what you will. If you come up with something, please let us know. <laughs> yeah, I it, there's definitely some you know some type of connection they're trying to make there. Um but I do love the imagery of Jamie as a cat and I'm going to go a little off track here because it's constantly mentioned that you can't ever hear him walking, right? Like he mm-hmm. just walks so quietly. And I just love 
that William is so much like Jamie in so many ways. But like, I, I don't even know if it's ever specifically mentioned, but everything else I know about Willie makes me feel like he walks around like a fucking elephant. <laughs> like heavy footed, like you can hear him coming a million miles away. And yeah, cause he's just, He's just not as agile as his father. <laughs> In his defense, if you were his papa, would you want to teach that kid to be sneaky? No. <laughs> no, no, that is very good. That's, that is that's very not what you want. Good point. Yes, that, no, is a, I, that is a very good point. I can imagine that there were like literal conversations in which... Will, William was being instructed in the ways of walking proudly like a man by Lord John. And it's <laughs> how like announcing your presence way before. And like, just, I can see it. I could just see it because you know, he is just always one, one bad day away from an ulcer. <laughs> Parenting that child. By he's like, he's like, dear God, my nerves are already frayed to the very last thread from the boy's father sneaking up on me so much and never knowing when that man's just going to pop up out of nowhere. He's like, I can't do it again. <laughs> I don't have nightmares of Krefeld, but I do, I do raise a Fraser. <laughs> like, like I cannot. it's like, his heart couldn't take it. It's like, just like William popped up out of nowhere and he looks so much like Jamie like John's like I'm gonna have a heart attack I can't I can't do it this is the real reason he drinks beer for breakfast it has nothing to do with digestion it's because he needs to fortify his fucking constitution to get through the day well it oh. might have something to do with his his indigestion right <laughs> It's fucking heartburn over that boy. (laughs) Start the day hammered. It'll be fine. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I drink like that, too. I love him. It's it's interesting to me, too, that Willie's always getting lost, too. Jesus Christ. Which (laughs) I know is supposed to, like, symbolize that he is lost, but, like, one could also argue that at the beginning of Outlander and immediately prior, Jamie was lost. And he still, you know, could find his way out of a freaking cardboard box and William can't. <laughs> <laughs> if that child gets lost in the fog one more fucking time, I swear to God. Oh, it's a great dismal swamp. Uh, I actually don't live too far from the dismal. No. I didn't realize that until I was was saying something about, I think I was listening to the audiobooks, you know, a couple years ago with my husband and I mentioned it to him and he goes, you know, the dismal's not that far. I'm like, fucking for real? And so Google, like, oh shit, there it is. That's a lot of swamp. Of course, now you can probably drive around it, you know, in like a couple hours or something. Highway gets uh, That was a fun tangent. It was. I love Willie. Okay. Can't wait for season seven. Okay. Back back to the depression. 
I also, um, I, I kind of had to laugh at myself a little bit because Mother Hildegard tells Claire, throw your grief into the sea. Or throw your anger, I'm sorry, throw your anger into the sea. Oh, I said grief in my notes, that's why. Or and Claire, yeah. Claire says, there isn't a sea deep enough. And first of all, I love that exchange because it mm -hmm. just shows Claire's mental state at that moment. Like she is so pissed at Jamie. She truly thinks this is, she's done with him. Like, yeah. like it's done. She has no love for him. And she tells him later she hated him um, in those moments. But then I also thought like, like that's me at like the slightest inconvenience. <laughs> like, 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 like everything is catastrophic. Anyway. Um, Big feelings. <laughs> I'd also just like to take a second and point out that one of the minor criticisms I have about this episode is the way that it kind of bounces back and forth. And they didn't do a terrible job with it, but I do in some ways kind of wish they told it a little more linearly. But anyway, I digress. The scene when Claire comes home and comes out of the carriage with Fergus and the servants are all lined up and then she thanks Magnus. Mm -hmm. I don't know what fucking subliminal messages or shit they are putting in that scene, but it makes me blubber every goddamn time. Like what is it about that scene that is so heart-wrenching to me like I don't understand it and I I mean I get it but also like the whole episode is heart-wrenching why does that scene destroy me every time I don't I don't get it that scene gets me too and it kind of irritated me a little bit how much I cried over this episode the third time I watched it because like I know what's fucking coming but that's I actually because I saw your note about that particular scene I started really thinking about it so some of the things that they did were the sound falls away and you just hear the mournful music. There's not really a whole lot. There's mm. a little bit of little bit of voiceover, but not really. Um, the servants are all lined up there in a like a funeral procession, like a, like she's doing an honor walk yeah. from the carriage to the house. Um, Suzette just starts bawling, and then the way she curtsies to Magnus. Oh God, I'm gonna start yeah, I know I'm talking about it. Back in their tear. Get back in their tear. Yeah. I just because, can't. Because oh he saved he saved her life. He, he carried did. her to the hospital. And he was because we didn't really talk about this when we talked about in in last week's episode, but yeah, I mean, he didn't want to let her go. To, to where the duel was happening. So he accompanied her and he was the one that was holding her hand and trying to, like he was doing the things that, that Jamie should have been doing. Yep. And he's the one that saved her life. And again, that's usually Jamie's job. And yep. here's this servant who... You know, he's a servant. Like, he would have every right to, like, just 
be like, you know, do the bare fucking minimum. Um, but he didn't. And it shows how much they all love Claire and then how much she appreciates him. And it's a far cry from earlier in the season when she was just kind of like talking in front of the servants, like they're invisible and annoyed with the servants for like doing their fucking job. But again, that's part of her humbling. Yeah. I hate to say it, but I don't think that humbling sticks. Well, I mean, Claire is not a humble character by nature, but I do think that I do think that it taught her to be less capricious with other people's lives. And I think that it started to give her the inkling that she, just because she's a time traveler, doesn't make her God. Yeah. Because as somebody with knowledge of modern medicine, modern 1940s medicine, um, going back into the 18th century, saving a lot of people's lives with simple shit to her, stuff that's simple to her, and being able to feel like she can act superior to people because she has all of this knowledge And all of that, I think, kind of builds her up to the point where she thinks she can probably say change history. Right. So it's like it's almost like a slow kind of step up to that to where she gets to that point. And then not only does she get to the point where she thinks she can change history, but then she thinks she holds life and death in her hands on more of a transcendent plane, like not just as a physician, but like her actions could cause somebody in the future to cease to exist. And that's getting really fucking close to the sun. Yes. I think she got knocked out out of that to, to at least a degree. And she has to live with the consequences of how long it took her to get there for the rest of the season and then for 20 more fucking years. Yeah. The rest of the season is just punishing Claire for her God complex. That was maybe a controversial statement. We'll see if it holds up at the end of the season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I'm not like appalled or anything. I'm just like, think like, I just like have to kind of to watch it again to, to kind yeah. of see that i'm just thinking cause and effect as we go through right. this again and like the the conversation that i want to have at the at the end of this like there's a lot of you have to keep cause and effect in mind when you're analyzing media when you're writing media that kind of thing so the this drive of hers to try to stop the rising is futile she's realizing that she's not above pain and absolute um absolute just rock bottom trauma she can't play god she couldn't play god for herself or her own child what does she think she can do for a whole country and now she's stuck with the consequences of her actions yeah 
Yeah, time travel just did not do good things for Claire. I mean, of course she met the love of her life, but yeah, it's like, and I guess I've just never really thought of it like this. Like the stuff I Mm -hmm. just said, I was really kind of getting there, like as I was saying it and like, but yeah, it really, and I could see how just the fact that you freaking chime traveled could give you that sort of power boost, right? Like, holy shit, I can transcend time. <laughs> like, what the I, fuck? Super special me. It really did have horrible consequences. Yes, yeah, she met Jamie, but Jesus, yeah. at what cost? Good Lord. And I think that, because I think when you, what you said, when you said God complex, I had to think about that term a little bit because I don't think that Claire has a, I don't think it's her innate nature to have a God complex. I think it came about because of the situation that she's in, but call a spade a spade. I mean, that's basically what it is. And basically, and if you look back, especially over this season, you can see how it sort of just spins out of control. Um, And I think part of the reason it spins out of control is because when Randall, when um, Blackjack Randall took Jamie and did the things that he did to him and, and Claire had a really hard time reaching Jamie and then kind of just kind of resorted to being heavy handed and not going about it the right way. I think she, already had realized that she was losing her control over things because for up until that point um especially like once she married jamie you know i think that well i'm trying to think even when she was kidnapped by them and under their you know they they were holding her prisoner she still felt like she could control the situation in different ways. Oh, you mean when the McKenzie's were keeping her? Right, right, right. So like, I think that like, she sort of always felt like she could control situations in any sort of way. And I think that the, probably one of the first times she realized she couldn't was when Jamie was taken by Blackjack Randall and, all the other bad things and she couldn't she had she couldn't control anything anyway okay that's a good that was a good think it's a good talk yeah. thinky thinks and <laughs> thinky thinks and feels um okay so now um next bad thing well actually i'm gonna i think we no. should just kind of finish talking about if there's anything else about claire with um, oh, yeah, let's talk about Louise and Claire first, and then we'll oh, talk about gosh. the other bad things. Second, really heartbreaking. I mean, the whole thing is heartbreaking. But second, particularly heartbreaking um, moment is when Claire has been holding the baby for like all day. And finally, Louise comes and convinces her to let the baby go. Um, oh, my God. May heartbreaking. Oh, that is the sweetest we've ever seen her. It is. And I think that 
Claire keeps telling us that Louise is a good friend, but we don't get to see it until that happens. And in the book, I'll point out too, it goes even further because in the book, when Claire gets out of the hospital, she goes to, she doesn't go back to Jared's. She goes to Louise's like summer home or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and stays there for quite a long time. Like Jamie oh, yeah. is in the Bastille for like, like months. months. Yeah. In the book. So, um, and you just see Louise's just total generosity and, you know, taking Claire in and, and all of that. But yeah. Um, okay. The, I wish I remembered this version of Louise after I had watched through the first time. Like, because I, I think I said, not last, not last episode, maybe it was the one before, whatever with Louise and her friends and they're just being awful. That's what I remembered of Louise. Yeah. But something I got out of this rewatch is I will remember Louise more fondly. That's good. I like that. I may not remember season two very fondly, but I will remember (laughs) Louise and how sweet she was there at the very end. That's okay. The better half of the season is coming. If for no Um, other reason than there is like five minutes of John. (laughs) <laughs> yes it's not even david barry but it's not even david. it'll do i'll take it we'll I'll take, take anything in a pinch anything we can fucking get <laughs> <laughs> oh god um okay so we got to talk about the the next bad thing and i am just ugh, like like did they really just show a child being raped like, yes. are you fucking kidding me? Mm-hmm. And why, why, why don't we talk about this more? Because it is, it's obviously not the most graphic, but no, but it's pretty bad. It's a child, and he is played by a child. I would like to point out this is the second time a child has been raped on screen in under three hours of runtime. Second, Mary. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. I think part of it for me that makes it a little bit worse is that the actor himself is a child. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I'm sh- I hope that when they filmed it, they because you don't really see you never really see Blackjack Randall and Fergus on the screen together during the actual attack. Like you see Fergus yeah. with a hand on him and then you see Black Jack. So I'm hopefully they filmed this in such a way that was not traumatizing to um, the actor. Um, I hope he's okay. <laughs> like, um, but I, And it's like, we don't ever talk about this, but I think it's because it's just thrown in this episode where all you ever really remember from this episode is the whole sequence of Claire and coming to terms and and, and all of that stuff. And then like, ah, just throw a child rape in there. I think the reason we don't talk about it is because it didn't happen to Claire or Jamie. True. Even though it had dire, it had consequences for everybody, but we never really see Fergus struggle with this later. I mean, maybe a little in season six, kind of, sort of, like it's some baggage that comes up with Henri Christian, 
But right. that's about it. Well, and if if you remember when we talked a little bit more about Fergus's life in the brothel, in mm-hmm. the books, it is made clear that Fergus was used as a whore mm-hmm. from time to time in the brothel. And they don't mention that at all in um, the show. Yeah. Um, not that it makes either better or worse, but it's... Um, it's just it was still traumatizing to him in the books yeah absolutely absolutely yeah it's not like he was just used to it like what child should be fucking used to it oh no not at all and i think it probably was even almost worse because he finally felt like he was safe yeah and maybe not worse but it, you know it was probably shocking even more shocking because he he thought he was safe and I just I I can't believe they they show it that's so it was so unnecessary yeah I'm like why do I have to sit here and watch this such a good question like did they think like to me because it's not like I, I don't even want to go there but your audience is not fucking stupid. You could set that up so that it's heavily implied without actually showing it happening. And we will still understand how angry Jamie was to be driven to break his promise to Claire. Like we didn't have to see that to, to understand that Jamie's actions were justified. Because our imagination is way worse than anything they could have shown yeah. on the screen. And what they showed on the screen was pretty flipping bad, but I can't think of a single person, particularly a parent who hasn't had this horrific, maybe it's just an intrusive thought, but something could happen to my child. Yeah. And imagines the absolute worst. Like if you've ever lost your kid in the mall oh my or, God. Like they've wandered off at a campground or something. Like if you've never experienced that, I'm so very happy for you. Um, But if you have experienced it, you know exactly what's going through your head. And it is even worse than this. We didn't need to see it because we know. And I mean, honestly, I think that like 99% of the population like is not, is could have seen way less of what they did and again like i said again they would have been like oh yep jamie you're good you're good bro go you know go go ahead it's like yeah we're not we're not stupid don't treat your audience like they have no imagination um and that they need to be beat over the head by what happened it's still not the historical accuracy bullshit excuse it's still not like good storytelling i'm just gonna completely say that it's still not good storytelling it's not statistically accurate this is not like why would you make this like a family fucking bonding activity in your media across six seasons Ugh. like why 
I do have more thoughts on this, but it fits into the other conversation. Okay. Well, we're almost there. I don't know if we really need to talk too much about Claire at Versailles. Again, did not need to see that. Well, first of all, the whole thing with with her and Raymond and the Comte, I feel like that dragged on like just a little too long. It did. Like it was it was interesting. I liked how Claire kind of brought up, you know, Lady Sleepley. Like she was did some good thinking on her feet. I loved when the Comte tried to get out of trouble by admitting that he poisoned Claire. Uh-huh. Um, but then it just kind of, it was like, okay, we get it. Like, all right. I was just, I, I do. <laughs> I was just looking at the Comte's costume the whole time. Like his suit, that shiny, that shiny suit is just, it was mesmerizingly beautiful. I Loved it. I love that very much. <laughs> and then that shitting his pants look of absolute <laughs> fucking terror when her necklace turned black. I'm like, oh, here we go. That baby. was a good. That is like a good moment because, like, you're like, oh shit, Claire is giving this guy mercy. Holy crap. Nope. Well, and not no. that she did it, but like, but you she know, knew. she knew yeah. what she was doing. It was fantastic. I mean, he'll get better. He's fine. Yeah. But just that shitting his pants, like, fuck, I hope this works. <laughs> yeah, I forget how they explain that. Like, they don't, but he's a necromancer. So they, it just, I don't, I don't remember if they really actually explain it like in detail, but in the space between that short story, we see him like experimenting on rats, bringing right. dead rats back to life. Um, but, and I think it maybe was in an author note that like it's based on the fact that there's always been like a Comte Saint Germain and kind of has always looked the same. And so it's kind of like that whole Keanu Reeves is a vampire because he's in all of these historical fig- pictures <laughs> and stuff. You know that you know that theory? Yeah, um, yeah. It's kinda it's kinda like that. So he's a necromancer, and I don't think they actually explain how it happens, how it works, but it does. And I hope we get to see him again because he's just Fantastic. And I need more of that Jamie Compt energy. But if he's a necromancer, you can't, necromancers don't raise themselves from the dead. Okay. He's a zombie. I don't know. Well, because I'm just trying to figure it out. Like, because Claire says that Raymond must have poisoned yeah. the, the drink. Mm-hmm. But like, did he really? Or did he just give him something that made him look like he was like, you know, like fucking Romeo and Juliet shit. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Now I kind of want to listen to uh, the space between again. Yeah. I got to go back and read that again. It was a long time ago that I read it. It's been a while. By a long time ago. I mean like two years or something, but my brain (laughs) is not the same (laughs) that it used to be. It's been five minutes. I've already forgotten. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to remember in Versailles because there was a couple comps in in that in the TV show Versailles that were you know related to or part of the court or whatever and I can't remember if there was a Saint Germain or not that they and there anyway it doesn't matter okay so here we are you have this statement 
that you put in the notes that you're surprised Louis wasn't scared to have sex with Claire after she admitted she was a white witch. <laughs> I think this is as close. <laughs> I was back and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to skip that. But you're like, nope. <laughs> I can't let it go. This, I think, is as close as we're going to get to the Pan Horrifies Beth segment for this episode because oh, I just don't have it in me. But does that just make him a monster fucker? <laughs> sit with it it's fine <laughs> i don't know i just yeah i mean he's a monster um but yeah that whole thing again like i did not need to see that i just uh, of course as a woman who has given birth all i can think about is like how she's not healed and just oh uh, 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 anyway yeah okay and then yeah i had mm-hmm. a very poor that would have been in poor taste okay Shut your mouth, Pan. <laughs> Speaking of character growth. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Let's talk about story structure and pacing. Okay. So there is a video that a friend actually shared with me. We kind of talked about it for a while um, a couple days ago. And if I can remember to drop the link in the document, we can post that on, so- we'll have posted that on social media. If it wasn't there, it means I forgot. Um, so let's talk story structure and pacing. I told my husband that we were going to talk about this and I phrased it like, there's such a thing as too much bad shit to put your characters through. And he goes, oh, hell, if you're saying that. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> he, has, he has a point. That's very, I said valid. Shut up. So Thinking of writing a story, whether it is a novel or a TV show, film, whatever, writing some sort of work of fiction, your characters need to have bad things and defeats and setbacks and all of that, you know, awful shit. It's required in most genre structures to get your protagonist from the beginning to the end. So we have the beginning of the story. We have, you know, kind of your, your thesis statement. This is exactly what his life is. This is status quo. This is where we are. Something is missing. And then when we get to the end of the story, we have the bookend of that. It's usually a mirror image or some sort of a reflection of that first scene. So you have to get them. There's a long process that it takes to get from point A to point B. So without living through this bad stuff, your protagonist can't grow and change. And if he doesn't grow and change, they can't reach their goal. So we do see that in this episode with Claire is growing and changing because she's experienced these, you know, very, very bad things. But there does come a point where the protagonist loses sight of the goal completely, which I think we also see in this episode. And their goal shifts to just simply avoiding more pain, more trauma, more torment, more hurt. And this is where your audience starts to lose hope. It's okay for your characters to lose hope, at least temporarily. But once you've lost your audience, you've lost your plot. So there has to be like this thread of hope that runs through all of the angst and the trauma and the awful shit, even if only the audience can see it. If the character can't see it, that's okay, as long as the audience can see it. And that's where I was like, okay, maybe that's why they included that scene with Claire and the child. Yeah. Because maybe they're like, don't lose hope. She's going to 
at least, you know, she, she is going to have a baby, but you're like, okay, but she's still in the fifties. Like what happened to Jamie? Whatever. But maybe that's like, when I read that you had put that on there, I was like, oh, interesting. Maybe that's why that's there. But I mean, it's, was pretty piss poor effort on their part, but maybe that's why. <laughs> because then we immediately know that this is not the same child. Right. So all of this relates to pacing of the story. Long form fiction, your films, hour long TV shows, even, you know, some 30 minute TV shows can be, you know, long form depending upon how they're, how they're structured novels. These are a marathon, not a sprint. So you have to manage your pacing very carefully and intentionally. And that is as far as the running metaphor is going to go because I don't run, not even when chased. But it's still, it's a long process, right? You have to, (laughs) you have to manage the pace. If I run, I'm already a zombie. It's fine. Yeah. (laughs) If I'm being chased, I'm just, I'm just going to let, let whatever (laughs) higher power is out there you know, take the wheel. <laughs> we, have already, take the wheel. we have already established I would have not made it off a of Cracknatoon. As soon as running became involved, that's it. Done. <laughs> anyway. But in managing your pacing, there has to be ups and downs. It's not going to be a consistent pace throughout. There's going to be faster pace, slower pace, because that's what keeps the characters moving. There have to be rewards and payoffs, but also costs and setbacks, even in those really dark, like angsty, really dark angsty fiction where it's just like, it can't possibly get any freaking worse. How is it going to possibly get worse? There still has to be even small rewards, payoffs to maintain that thread of hope throughout the narrative. They can be, your characters can be on this like just one way street of just abs- to absolute self-destructionville, right? There could be, they can have completely lost hope and they don't care, just burn it all down and let God sort it out. But you still have to plant spaces for that character to breathe along the way so that your audience can breathe along the way. It lets them keep going. So what does this mean to me <laughs> for this episode? At some point... Your story usually demands that you completely rip the rug out from under your characters. And this usually happens about 75% of the way in. And that's not me making shit up that save the cat structure, which you can apply to virtually any, any work of fiction. An episode this traumatic, though, might actually be a really good choice. But I think at this point in the season, it's too early because now things still have to get worse. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting because like... I mean, in a way, this season is really two seasons. Yeah. Right? Like, like I feel like they, it's like such a clear demarcation. And I think I even said something like last week or the week before, I can't remember, about like this being the climax of the first half of the season. Yes. And so if you think of this as two seasons, then it came too late. It should have been the second half of the previous episode and not all of this one. It just, it went on too long. So this episode is really just absolutely hopeless in a frankly, generally hopeless season. We know that Claire and Jamie are going to get separated because we saw it. We know now that they are burying a child because we see it. Claire at the beginning of this episode has given up completely. And after she comes home, she is content to brood and drink and hide in her room and 
I can't blame her for that. I absolutely can't imagine doing any better under the circumstances no. at all. I can't. But here's the thing. What drives her to pick herself back up again is learning about Fergus's rape. That's the thing that spurs her into action, that helps her forgive Jamie, that moves her to go to Mother Hildegard and try to get Versailles. So I have said this before and I'll say it again. If your plot movement requires raping your characters to keep the plot going, your plot is not properly structured. I agree. There I said it. I Well, first of all, I want to say I laughed a little when you mentioned pacing because Diana has no sense of fucking pacing. No, it's everywhere. It's very it's sporadic. Her books especially as they've gone on, have become more and more like nothing happens until there's like literally 50 fucking pages left. Like it's like 900 pages and then like 50 pages where everything happens. Yeah. Um, Bees was really like that. Bees was like that. A Breath of Snow and Ashes was yes. like that. I mean, if you think about, if you go back and look at that book and just like, I don't have a physical copy, but so, but like I can just imagine because I've kind of done the math on my, on my ebook, like everything happens in like, like the last, like 50 to 75 pages. It's mm-hmm. unbelievable. And I remember when season six was on, I was like, they only have one le- episode left. How are they going to fit this all in? Like it's, there's so much. And of course they didn't because they ended the season early and we'll get to see some of that at the beginning of season seven, but her, her pacing is just terrible. And again, it's like, because she writes out of order and when she writes things that are interesting to her, but really do not serve a plot, she doesn't seem to cut them. I mean, maybe she cuts a ton of stuff. And then if that's true, holy God, no wonder (laughs) it takes her 10 years to write a book. But like, (laughs) you're not wrong though. It comes down to editing. And like I said before, I am not trying to say that I'm the best writer on the planet. Okay. I have, you know, Um, It's a hobby for me, but I write things all the time that I don't end up using, even if they're really good, even if like it really tickled my brain to write it and I thought it was really cute or I thought I did a really good job with it or whatever, because if it's not serving the plot, it doesn't belong and it it just but that's not to say that you can't have it's not filler if it does serve some purpose and maybe that purpose is character development maybe that purpose is world building in an organic way um yes i agree with both of those things yeah 
but there are ways like and i get it like you don't want to you don't want to just throw away the stuff that didn't make it well you know and if you're writing fan fiction you can always share that you can put it on ao3 or on tumblr and say hey it didn't make the final cut here's a here's a deleted scene yeah. or if you are writing a novel especially if you're you know an indie publisher that's the thing you can put on your patreon right help pay for your freaking editor <laughs> that's <Right>. my plan <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, it's it, just the pacing, the the criticisms that we have, like, how do I want to say this in a remotely kind way? Diana got very lucky with Outlander. Mm-hmm. She does have a natural talent for a lot of things. I'll say that a lot of things about writing like specifically oh yeah there's nat- there's there's definitely raw talent in the books what i see though like you said what you said was needs an editor i think also it would benefit from some study of the craft i don't see mm-hmm. evidence of that i don't see evidence that there have been like i just don't i don't see it growing i i have here's a good here's a good example jim butcher Love him or hate him, whatever. I like the Dresden Files. And his debut novel is the first book in the Dresden Files series, Stormfront. And it's not bad. It's structured well. It follows the general urban fantasy genre, not formula, but story structure. You know, it hits it hits the the gritty, like PI, you know, detective noir kind of feel and tone it hits it hits those points it's not his most polished work but as you read the series and he's like 18 books into it or something by now you see the writing develop you see the style Mm -hmm. flourish and improve and it's really fun if you read an author if you're you know nerd ass like me to read an author from the beginning of their career through towards the end and you can watch it You can watch it develop and blossom. Um, I've been rereading Anne Rice and talking about it with a friend who's also rereading the Vampire Chronicles. And you can see her her structure and her format, her writing style change and develop and grow and the stories evolve in positive ways. I don't yeah. see that so much with Outlander. And I'm, it doesn't yeah. mean they're bad books. It doesn't mean that I don't no. like them. It doesn't mean that I regret having ever read them. Like, obviously, <laughs> I have devoted a lot of fucking time to this fucking fandom. <laughs> Holy hell. I was lost the minute Jean Grey entered my life. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. She got very, very lucky. She's got raw talent. But I don't see that there has been a lot of development in intentional ways. Yeah. And I, I think that's an important point. I don't think it's intentional. But I will say that I do think that she does a better job honing her story with the Lord John books. Yes. Because she set out with them intentionally that they, like, I feel like she wrote them with so much more intention. Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying she did an outline, God forbid, but she had she knew what she what type of story she wanted to write and she knew it was like it it was like she kind of knew how to get there because it's more their books are more 
like a procedural than they are, you know, and, and so I do see that, but again, I don't even know if that was intentional or just the nature of what she's writing led her to be more succinct in her writing than with the big books. Uh, It may have been, I mean, I do kind of see some evidence of outline and planning out and I know she's got it. She knows what she's, she has an idea of the story she wants to tell. And I understand the, um, what's the word? It's getting late and I'm getting tired. The, the approach of allowing the story to kind of develop as you write it, you know, writing by the seat of your pants. It's a valid way to write that stresses me the fuck out, but it's a valid way to write. I need a little bit more structure and then freedom to, you know, play with it. (laughs) But with the Laura John books, they are shorter. The point of view is tighter. And even like Brotherhood of the Blade, I would say, is the most meandering of that series. And even it still follows a goal. There's a couple of goals and they intersect, but it's a character has a need or a want and an obstacle to get to the goal. Yeah. There's a very logical cause and effect kind of progression that doesn't require you like a diagram to get through. (laughs) So yeah, there, I, I do genuinely enjoy the Lord John books, no matter how much I want to rant and rave about Scottish prisoner fucking, they should have fucked in Ireland. I remember some, on one of the, the Facebook groups for the books that I kind of like pop in every now and then just to see like how horrifying people are. Um, (laughs) It's Outlander Facebook is like a freaking cesspool. Like don't any, never go there. Like it's like, that is Twitter is. I can't even imagine. Oh, oh, it is. It is. I mean, Twitter looks like a walk in the park on a sunny day compared to Facebook. Mm, Hot garbage. Hot, soggy garbage. Somebody had posed the question like, um, how many authors can you name that have written the same series for over 30 years? Was it was like thirty or thirty five years? I can't remember. And it, you know, it was just kind of implying that Diana's like the greatest person ever and greatest author ever. And I was like, well, Stephen King in the Dark Tower series. <laughs> so I'm a big Stephen King fan, and I've been reading his books since I was a kid, probably since I was way too young to be reading Stephen King books. I think I read Misery when I was like in sixth grade or something, sixth or seventh grade. Um, Golly. My daughter has already read like half of it. And she's, well, she's 13 now, but she was reading when she was like 11. I digress. But when you were talking about watching the the author you mentioned growing, it's the same experience with Stephen King in the Dark Tower series. The first, Mm -hmm. the first book in that series was actually started as like a serial Um, and then it was kind of like thrown together into a book. And then like, he did go back at some point, like in the, in the like late nineties or early two thousands and like kind of redo it a little bit. But the first book in that series is like 
it's really hard to get through. And you, you kind of just have to push yourself through it. But since he wrote this book, the series over like 30, 35 years, like it, you, again, you can see him growing as a writer. Um, and of course with, he's got so many other books too, that you can, that yeah. you can watch that, that growth and stuff. But yeah, I mean, he's been writing longer than Diana has. Um, and it's more prolific. Oh, (laughs) but what I do love is that so like the vast majority of his books all still exist in the same universe, which is just fascinating to me. I don't know if you've ever seen the graphic of the Stephen King universe that somebody did like five or six years ago. No, I haven't. I'll show it to you and I'll, I'll post it just for funsies. Um, okay. It's mind boggling. Like it's so complex. <laughs> like Disney Pixar. Yeah, oh, <laughs> they got nothing on him. I, Cause he's, cause he is so prolific. And then like this one character that was like a super minor throwaway character in one book, all of a sudden shows up maybe again as a throwaway character in another book. And then like five years later shows up in a book as like the main character, like, and you're like, Oh shit. Like, but, but then he was talking to it's, it'll, it'll blow your mind. But like the dark tower series is considered like, kind of like the keystone of the universe. It's, it's wild. It's wild, which is interesting because the dark tower itself is in the series is the keystone and there's like it's like a multiverse but like there's one universe where the dark towers it exists that is the keystone universe so it's kind of wild this sounds like i can understand knowing what i know about you as a person and everything <laughs> you have mentioned about this series now and in the past i get it this tracks <laughs> This tracks. <laughs> I mean, you want you want freaking time travel, multiverse, the I whole don't. nine yards. I know <laughs> I you don't. I don't. But if anyone listening does, um, <laughs> you got to check the Dark Tower series out. It's just it's so good. You just get through the first book. It's pretty good when you. It's it's really good after you've read the whole series and then go back and you're like, oh, all of this shit makes way more sense now. <laughs> Because you're the whole book, you're going, I don't understand what's happening. Anyway, I digress again. So how about some things about this episode that just make no sense? Oh, shit. You want to go first? Why did Claire have to call for Jamie when Raymond was saving her life? That was kind of weird, right? It was deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. It was deeply uncomfortable. And I can't necessarily handle it in there. I can't articulate why it's so deeply uncomfortable, but it was deeply uncomfortable. Because he's deeply got his hands shoved up in her <laughs> the JJ. Okay. <laughs> he's up to And he's like, call your man. And he's like, call your man. Like, what the fuck? What in the <laughs> studio 54 is happening right now? <laughs> oh, Anyway, 
The only thing I I found to be kind of mind boggling on this one is how uh, how much Claire is just like really characterized as being a terrible liar unless she's got plenty of warning and having a glass face. And I really relate to being a terrible liar because I also play along like a monkey with a mandolin. <laughs> How then did she manage to pull off such a convincing act with the king and the witchcraft and all that shit with no warning? Because all of a sudden she's on Broadway. It's interesting you mentioned that because I was thinking about that when I was watching it. And I don't think she actually does a very good job. I think Louis is just kind of like out of his depth. And I mean, I I wasn't buying it. I mean, she ain't fooling anybody. The Comte and Raymond already know what's up. Right. So everything she's saying to the Comte is just like, like she's just basically leveling the accusations at him that he already knows about. Mm -hmm. And then, and like, if you look at her face and like some of the gestures she makes and the way she's talking, I think Katrina Bell actually does a really good job of portraying Claire as a shitty actress. (laughs) She did. (laughs) Which is quite a feat, right? Um, Because like, she does this weird thing, like where she puts her hand in front of her face and like, like, whatever. And like, it's so cringe. But I think, like, I don't, I just think Louis is just, like, portrayed as just, like, out of his, out of his depth with this shit. He's going along, so he doesn't look like the idiot. Exactly. That, that <laughs> too. Like, sense. when, when the comp is like, she's a witch, and Claire's like, yeah, but I'm a white witch. And then Louis's just like, she's not on trial here. Like, <laughs> he's, like, <laughs> trying to maintain control. Yeah. And, like. But, like, I think there is also a part of him that, like, believes that she is a witch. Mm -hmm. um, Because he definitely believes that these guys are evil and or potentially evil. And I think he's kind of like, like, I think he sort of pulled her into that room to exert power over her and to kind of make her dance like his puppet and Mm. she just sort of did her Claire thing. And even though she is a shitty actress, like she was trying to control the narrative and trying to control what happened. And he was trying desperately not to lose control of the situation. And in his mind, she's like way more powerful than he actually thought she was going to (laughs) be. So I think it's just a lot of like power dynamics and, you know, weirdness happening. I don't think he, I don't think she actually did a good job acting. But it worked. That's the main thing. Exactly. It worked. It everything worked. was, everything worked out. Yeah. So we, we did talk a little bit about John and. We did. The Brotherhood of the Blade and the So. Um, and we're just going to skip pan horrifying me this episode because I'm already freaking horrified enough by the actual episode. Yeah. Hard <laughs> same. I already used the word monster fucker. It's fine. We don't need it. It's just, I, yeah, we've got <laughs> fucking, yeah, I don't need to recap. How about a fic wreck? Uh, yeah, let's just get to the fix, fic wreck. I picked one. 
It's called um, The Best by Far is You by Flying Home Against the Wind. And it's written by someone that I um, that I interact with a lot on Twitter. She's a very nice person, wonderful person. And it's a Faith Lives fic. And the Frasers um, stay in Paris uh, after Faith Lives. And it's a... Or wait. I'm sorry. No. Well... No, they go back to Paris. That's right by the end. Anyway, anyway, Faith lives. There's a lot of, there's definitely some great angst. There's some separation. There's some re- reunions. There's Paris. There's family. There's family cuteness. So it's got a little bit of everything. And it would definitely be um, a nice little hopeful piece of writing after watching 207 so there we go give it a read and uh hopefully and give the give the author some love and yeah excellent rec we'll make sure that has been linked in social media if you're listening on spotify well it's i think on most podcast platforms we do put the links in the episode description as well I know in yes. Spotify, it's clickable. Take you right over to AO3. Just thought I'd mention that. I didn't see any mail this week. I guess we should probably just remind folks that this is our last episode for a little while. We are going to take a hiatus for the holidays. Less stress for us. Maybe more for you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but we will be back with episode 208 on the 6th of January. Yeah, it's going to be a long hiatus, but yeah, we, we've been working on this podcast continuously since April, Mm -hmm. right? So yeah, we haven't really taken much of a break. We definitely need a break. And um, I think we mentioned this earlier in the season, like we were going to take a break between season one and season two, but then I was kind of like, but wait, the calendar lines up perfectly if we did half and half. Um, so <laughs> this is your fault. My, my brilliant <laughs> idea. So now we're going to all take a nice break for the holidays, whatever ones that you celebrate between November and the beginning of January. And um, and then we'll come back. And yeah. yeah. And by the time the next episode airs, nine one one Lone Star will have aired its first episode of season four, so I can now sit around and anticipate that you know without I don't know what I'm trying to say <laughs> I'm tired <laughs> but like I can now I can now devote myself fully to being uh, a nine one one Lone Star fan girl for the next like six to eight weeks so. <laughs> just in the nick of time but um yeah well do continue to send us mail comments um, find us at lord john lander on twitter or tumblr or lordjohnlander.wordpress.com slash contact us if you want to get right to the contact page if you have thoughts thinky thoughts feels feels while you're dealing with you know whatever you may be dealing with for the next few weeks and we would love to hear from you so Uh, With that, see you in 2023. Bye.
If you're listening to this, it means you survived another episode of Lord John Lander. We'd love to hear from you on Twitter or Tumblr at Lord John Lander or on our website at lordjohnlander.wordpress.com slash contact us. All opinions expressed on the Lord John Lander podcast belong to us and are not affiliated with Outlander, Sony, Stars, and definitely 100% not with Diana Gabaldon. This podcast is not suitable for children, immature adults, homophobes, anyone who takes fandom seriously, people who don't understand that the characters aren't real, people with sticks up their ass, people who hate fun, and people with no sense of humor. Do not try any of these hot takes at home. We are professionals. And if you know us in real life, no you don't.